Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Now, before we get to today's show, I want to address a couple of things. We've received some really useful listener feedback over the past couple of weeks. And as our longtime listeners know, Alpha Chat's experienced a bit of change over the last few months. We've had changes in hosts and in some weeks even format. And having you stick with us throughout this process, it, it really means a lot. We'll have much more to announce soon. But for now, let me just say that we've got a slate of really exciting interviews booked for the spring. And we're also going to be introducing a few new voices to the hosting mic. Much more on all of this later. And for those of you who have been struggling to hear Alpha Chat on that noisy subway or underground ride, we've heard your cries, and hopefully the volume of this week's episode is more to your liking. Now, on to today's show. This week, economist Emi Nakamura on the methods and madness of trying to capture inflation. The FT's senior investment commentator, John Authors, sits down with the Columbia business and economics professor to dig into the way inflation statistics are compiled in the U.S., what the cost of inflation is to the economy, and what's really going on with the relationship between inflation and unemployment. Here it is. Amy Nakamura, thank you very much for joining us here at the FT today. We've just had publication of CPI data for another month. It's caused great excitement on markets, and we're also looking forward to the first meeting with uh, Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve. You've devoted a large part of your career to actually trying to measure inflation. How comfortable can we be that those numbers that we have from the Bureau of Labor Statistics are accurate? Where do they come from? I think that at a basic level, you can be very comfortable that they're accurate in the sense of capturing accurately what the CPI says it's capturing. So the way the CPI works, it's a, a very old and in some sense antiquated procedure where uh, lots of price collectors across the United States literally go into stores and um, look at the prices of different products on the store, on, on the shelves of lots of these stores. And they do this every month, and then they compare the price of exactly the same product. So say it's a uh, two-liter bottle of Diet Coke at a particular Safeway in a particular city in the United States, and they do this uh, in two sequential months, and then they compare how much the price changed in one one month versus the last month. And uh, they collect uh, you know, about 100,000 quotes on this per month, and then essentially, they take an average across those quotes. So- as you said, one of the things I did in grad school was I spent a huge amount of time in a, in a windowless room at the Bureau of Labor Statistics working with exactly these data and 
I am completely confident, and I think you should be completely confident that this is really what they do. <laughs> uh, so, so at that level, I think you can be completely confident in the CPI. In fact, I, I, I can, I can think of few things that you could, you know, be more confident uh, in. And certainly because there is this very strong undercurrent of suspicion or belief. I mean, there's a, a generalized dis lack of or loss of trust in all kinds of things in our society these days, but it comes up so often when I refer to the persistent low levels of inflation that that's only because the numbers have been rigged. Is it possible, given the, what you've just described, all these people going into stores all over the country? I mean, is it really possible to try to, to rig this? I think it's, it's essentially impossible. I think there are ways to critique the CPI, but they're mostly about ways in which you think that the concept of the CPI should be different. And they're mostly things that would make the CPI lower and not higher. So I think that uh, the procedure that the BLS has chosen to use is one that has the great virtue of being replicable and simple and transparent. And, you know, in particular, as I said, what it does is to look at exactly the same product over time and look at how the price changes. And the main downside of that is that you don't capture quality change and new goods. So, um, for example, if you think about measuring the, the price of coffee, um, you know, you're going to be measuring the price of the same cup of coffee over time. Mm. But then if there's an introduction of a flat white, um, you're not going to be capturing the difference in the price of the flat white versus the coffee. Um, right. you're going to be capturing the inflation over time for the flat white uh, thereafter. But this difference between the flat white and the coffee is not going to be captured. So that's what people have referred to as the new goods bias or the quality change bias. And that's been discussed a lot by various um, commissions that have talked about the possibility of CPI bias. Right. But an important thing is that that's actually something that tends, tends to, to bias the CPI up, not down. And intuitively, that's because when you have new goods, or you have better goods, you know, that tends to be associated with a situation where, where consumers feel that, you know, buying the same level of, of, of utility or the same sort of standard of living is actually cheaper than it was before because the stuff that's out there is better. And I think the most important example of that is probably healthcare. You know, that it's right. very difficult to keep up with the, the quality change in healthcare. Mm. And, you know, the BLS is thinking a lot about how they can adjust for that. But I think that in a way, the two things you asked are kind of, they're in a way there's a, there's, they counterweight each other. They counterweight each other. Exactly. Because I think that the things that make the CPI not subject to, to manipulation are the fact that it, it, it's a very transparent, very simple procedure that involves for, for, for the vast majority of items looking at what I, what I described, which is called a match model index. And it's just a super simple mm. procedure. And the main critiques of the CPI are in some sense, this super simple procedure. Right. So I think, you know, you could, you can critique the, the, the CPI, but it's, it's not mainly in the direction of, of thinking that there would be bias or manipulation. So just, just to finish that thought, if anything, Starbucks has persuaded us that it's worth paying several dollars for a luxury cup of coffee rather than taking a spoonful of Nescafe and pouring boiling water on it, yes. which must be an enormous increase in price. Apple has persuaded us that we don't need just a little phone that opens up and you hold to your ear. We need a mini computer that we carry with us at all times. Those do actually, if anything, bias the CPI upwards rather than 
downwards. We can argue about whether they've really improved our quality of life, but if anything, they bias it upwards rather yes. than downwards. I mean, that's been the, in, in my view, the, the main form of important critique of, of, of the CPI that, that I think that the BLS itself has been very responsive to and, and aware of that, you know, in these, in these areas where there's rapid quality change, as I said, one of the most important ones would be healthcare. Um, if you are tracking over time the price of, say, a doctor's office visit, mm. you're, you, you might see over time that the price of the doctor's office visit is going up. But the things they're doing in the doctor's office are changing. And um, if, you, if you ask a person, uh, would you rather go to a doctor's office at current prices today or go to a doctor's office at much lower prices back in 1970? I think a lot of people are going to say, well, I'd rather go to a doctor's office at higher prices today because there are more treatments they can give me. Right. And it's, it, you know, the, even though the, the, the literal price is higher, the effective price once you adjust for quality is lower. And um, so it's that kind of thing that I think is a concern. You know, and, and the BLS is, is introducing more methodologies to deal with those things. But those are very slow moving changes in the methodologies that they use. So they have periodic sort of comprehensive uh, reforms of the methodology, you know, say every 10 years or so. The, the, the biggest one was the Boskin Commission, where they changed the formula to um, account for substitution bias. But those are slow-moving changes that happen infrequently. They're not the kind of thing that respond to, you know, inflation being unexpectedly high, say. Now, one other question I have is that CPI is one measure of inflation very widely quoted, but the Fed is well-known to uh, be perhaps more interested in the PCE measure of inflation. What's the difference between them? Why might the Fed choose to look at PCE as well? Right. Yes, there, I think there are good reasons for that. The two important reasons that the PCE and the CPI are different, and in particular that the CPI tends to yield higher inflation rates than the PCE, are first of all uh, differences in the formula. There's been this long discussion of substitution bias, which is the idea that if you go to a store, you tend to buy things that are cheaper. And so if there's something uh, whose price falls, you tend to buy more, more of that. And if you hold the basket that consumers are buying constant over time and estimating inflation, then you'll tend to overestimate the amount of inflation that consumers experience because you're not accounting for the fact that consumers can actually switch to cheaper products. So one difference between PC and CPI is that the PC is using an index that accounts for this kind of substitution bias. The reason that CPI does not use this index is because uh there are a number of different kinds of contracts that are indexed to the CPI for which it would be a major problem if the CPI were updated. And this idea of using weights that change over time because consumers are shifting between different product categories uh, requires more updating of, of the index. So this is why uh, I think the PC is conceptually um, a, a more appealing uh, measure. I think that would be the sort of consensus view of economists. But there's this issue uh, that the that, that it requires more updates and it's less um, it's available with a, a greater lag. So that's one difference. The second difference has to do with weights. And again, I think it's something where 
uh, the PC has an advantage. So the CPI weights are based on consumer surveys. By CPI weights, I mean the weights put on um, inflation of different types. So say the inflation, the, how do you weight together an inflation rate on food with an inflation rate on housing? Well, you think about how much uh, consumers spend on food versus housing. And how do you figure out how much consumers spend on food versus housing? Well, you ask them. But now imagine if you had to fill out the consumer expenditure survey, which involves you writing down the various things that you purchased and say you live in an apartment, also your rent. Well, what might happen is that you would write down your rent correctly because um, you remember your rent, but then you would forget some of the other things you bought. And so in comparing um, the weights that you see from the consumer expenditure survey to the weights based on um, production accounts, which is what the BEA focuses on, it looks like the weight on housing in particular is higher based on these consumer weights than based on production-based weights. And the PC is using these production-based weights. And I think there's probably reason to believe that that's a more accurate measure of the weights on these different kinds of expenditure categories. Now, let's talk a little about the history of inflation because you've done very painstaking work, you know, even more time in those uh, windowless rooms in the BLS, looking at data from the period of what we now call the Great inflation uh, in the 70s that uh, ended, I think most of us now agree, thanks to uh, Paul Volcker in the early 80s. Was anything different? That plainly was a period when inflation was meaningfully higher uh, than it is today. What was different about that period? What were the main things that you learned by going through all those microfiches and getting that data into a form where you could look at it. Yeah, so that was a very exciting project. Um, during the time I was working on my thesis, we realized that there were these uh, filing cabinets which had these microfilm in them. And uh, no one really knew kind of what these filing, filing cabinets were. And we finally found people at the BLS who could who could tell us, um, you know, some, some of the older um, employees at the BLS who could tell us that, that these were indeed inflation data from the 1970s. And then we ran into the problem that these microfilm uh, cartridges were in fact so old that they could not be read by modern uh, microfilm scanners. We couldn't even find scanners on the used market which could read them. <laughs> so then our very industrious um, PhD student at the time, co-author, uh, was able to find uh, a scanner company which was able to to retrofit uh, scanners to read these very old uh, microfilm cartridges. But the huge benefit to it is that it, it allowed us to construct a microdata base of prices going back to the 1970s and to extend earlier work, which had created, you know, similar database back to the 1980s. And the great thing about this, having this kind of a microdatabase, is that it allows you to consider both what the individual prices uh, look like and also think about, you know, for example, if you were to think about different methodologies for constructing the CPI, how would those look different? So the the question which really motivated us in um, starting this project was the question of uh, what are the costs of inflation? The period where the existing that the existing data set was for was only after 1988. And when we think about costs of inflation, just just let me uh, check my understanding. The, the classic idea is that inflation is a bad thing because it begins to mess up the signals being sent by uh, within the economy. That yeah. that uh, supply and demand allocation of resources is weakened if you're not so sure about price signals. Is yeah, that I think right? that's. I think there's several different ideas that have been important. I think that's probably the one that 
maybe one of the most classic ideas that there are, you know, one of the underpinnings of the market economy is the price system. Mm-hmm. So if there's very rapid inflation, then to maintain the appropriate relative prices between, say, apple juice and orange juice, you would have to have the apple juice producer and the orange juice producer kind of changing their price all the time. And if they don't quite do that right, then relative prices can get messed up. So that's one basic idea. But there are uh, several other ideas that people have thought about. Uh, for example, there's the idea that rapid inflation can redistribute money from debtors to creditors is another idea that people have thought about. There's also just... Um, ideas that relate to uh, to kind of thinking complexity. So if you think about trying to negotiate your wage with your employer, it's, it's much more difficult to do when there's a lot of inflation. Every contract has to be written thinking about inflation when inflation is substantial. So I, I think to some, ex- some extent, one of the reasons this was an interesting topic to work on is because it's an area where economists, there, there's broadly speaking been some agreement yeah. that Inflation is bad, and I think there's a very unified sense within the Fed that um, policies should be made that that maintain low and stable inflation. But exactly what the costs of inflation are is perhaps something that economists are are less unified in in knowing the answer to. So the idea that we had was that it would be interesting to look specifically at this first kind of cost, ask the question whether there was any evidence that in this very high inflation period in the 1970s, did we see that – the, the prices, the relative prices of individual products, um, whether there's evidence that they were becoming distorted by the high inflation. Mm-hmm. And in the models that central banks use, often that cost is, is very large. And what we, what we found in the data, which uh, basically surprised us, is that we really didn't see any evidence that this, these higher, this higher inflation during this period, which keep in mind was not a hyperinflation, was, you know, more like 10% inflation led to, um, you know, important distortions in, in relative prices. But 10% inflation would be very scary to anybody on Wall Street here today. That's right. And so we, we definitely don't want to take this as evidence that, that the cost of inflation aren't important. I mean, I would, I would be the, the first to, to argue that, uh, the triumph of inflation, overinflation that occurred over the last uh, 20 years since, since Volcker, um, is, is an enormous achievement and that we should do everything we can to, to maintain that. But what we were trying to show is that this particular cost of inflation that has to do with distorting the, the price signals, at least for moderate levels of inflation, didn't seem to be nearly as big. Um, as is typically assumed in the models that are, are used in many central banks. So this is related to this question of, you know, what the inflation target should be. And of course, that debate is about much lower levels of inflation. You know, there it's really a question of 2% inflation or 3% inflation and so on. But it's related to the question of how we should model the cost of inflation if we would think about a, a change in the inflation target. But the intriguing thing there then is even, even if you had got up to a level that Absolutely nobody is going to advocate as an inflation target, such as 10%. Yes. I, I'm just old enough to remember it getting to 26% back home in, in the UK in the 1970s. Even if you went as high as 10%, the costs would actually not be that great or in least, terms of the functioning of the market right, economy. Right. At least the costs from this channel. I don't know if I want to say the cost in terms of the functioning of the market economy, because we were really looking in a, in a somewhat limited way um, at evidence uh, for whether, as I said, the, the relative prices of products uh, became distorted by higher levels of inflation. But you could think about other costs of higher inflation. Among those costs, as I said, are, you know, for example, these, these redistributions that occur between people 
or um, these, these greater complexities of creating contracts. Another big issue, I think, um, right now certainly is the question of, of signaling. Um, and there's, you know, in, in the United States right now, there's been this enormous confidence built up around uh, the 2% inflation target. And to the extent that one, one might consider a deviation from that, I think one of the big things that policymakers are thinking about is the extent to which that would, you know, that would erode uh, some of the massive progress that's been made in terms of making the, the Fed's commitment to uh, low and stable inflation a, a credible thing. Now, we're going to need to talk an awful lot more about uh, the interrelationship between unemployment and um, and inflation. But one thing that's very interesting is that we nowadays think of Paul Volcker, who was in charge of monetary policy, as being the person who more than anybody else takes credit for, for breaking inflation, rather than thinking of it in terms of uh, the US and the rest of the Western world had this malaise, had very serious unemployment and that pushed down demand and allowed inflation to uh, to come down. What was more important, do you think? Why did we move away from the basis of your research? How did we get beyond that period of the of the great inflation? I think there clearly was an important policy change and it's one of those times when there was an important interaction between academic ideas and and policy. It's it's interesting to think back on how different um, people's thinking about inflation was in the late 1970s, but it was a time period when even many prominent academics were talking about the idea that uh, it was very unclear what might drive inflation, that perhaps high inflation was a cultural phenomenon, that perhaps monetary policy could do nothing about inflation. And so it was quite a radical thing for Paul Volcker to take the view that he was going to do what today might be viewed as conventional policy to bring down inflation um, by raising interest rates and then just towing a very hard line on this despite um, a very negative reaction you know, by the public, uh, certainly at the, at the beginning of this episode. And, you know, at the same time, you know, some years earlier, there had been this uh, landmark work by Milton Friedman, which is very closely related, um, and his, you know, more general contribution along the lines that, that fundamentally inflation is a monetary phenomenon, which today sounds like, you know, conventional wisdom. It sounds like nothing controversial, but at the time was a very controversial statement. It seems to me like um, this combination of, you know, Paul Volcker, who, Clearly, his ability to commit to this policy of, of of low inflation and convince people of this commitment was was different than um, previous Fed chairman and changing ideas, which probably influenced or interacted with this, yeah. um, were were important in in what happened. Now we still have the phenomenon that has carried on, really, ever since Paul Volcker that inflation really is under control. The idea of you know. Even 10% at this point is close to unthinkable in this country. Is this ultimately, you would say, because the Fed still has the, the aura of the credibility that, that Paul Volcker won for it? I think it is. I think that the nature of the debate that would occur in the United States if we started to see any real evidence that inflation was rising by any significant amount is completely different as a consequence of the experience of the 1970s and 1980s. Because in 1979, 
if you looked at the data, you would say, we've seen inflation increasing for a long time. There's been a lot of talk about trying to do something about this with monetary policy, but we haven't been able to succeed. We haven't been able to do anything about it. But now today, you know, standing in uh, 2018, we look back at history and we have this history behind us, not just in the United States, but in many other countries where there was this very high inflation and Volcker was successfully able to lower inflation. And then the successive uh, Fed chairman have been able to maintain extremely low and extremely stable inflation for a very long period of time using, you know, sort of a modern view of monetary policy. And I think this completely changes the debate about how you would respond to evidence of higher inflation today. I, I think it would be hard to defend the position that inflation was not something that was within the realm of policy control. Now, that leads us, I think, to another fascinating part of the debate, which I hear about all the time in my day job covering the markets, which is the Phillips curve, named after the first the first economist to uh, promulgate a clear trade-off between unemployment and inflation. The idea being that uh, if you have less unemployment, there's more people working, more money being spent, and inflation will go up. And that you could, therefore, policymakers could have a, a point on this curve where they could decide how much right. inflation they would tolerate for how much unemployment. Now, it's a 50 years since Milton Friedman, who we've already mentioned, made probably his greatest contribution to uh, to the field by basically completely destroying the notion of the Phillips curve as it stood at the time. Right. And the 70s appeared to, lay, once we actually had both of them high at the same time, appeared to lay waste the idea. And yet, I counted, I had two emails this morning mentioning the Phillips curve. Right. Take me through what was wrong or You've been part of a big discussion at the American Economics Association recently about this. What was the critical point that Milton Friedman made 50 years ago? And why are we still talking about this? So the, the critical point, it's very related to the things we've been discussing, was that in the 1970s, uh, the, the general view of the Phillips curve was that it was a long run trade off between inflation and unemployment and that you could just think as a society about where you want it to be in terms of that trade-off. Maybe you would be willing to live with a little bit higher inflation, particularly we talked about the cost of inflation and the cost of maybe 10% is unthinkable, but going from 2% to 4% to 6%, maybe it's not as clear that that's so costly. If you think you can lower unemployment from, say, um, you know, 8% to 6% to 4%. So that was the nature of the debate in the 1970s based on the traditional Phillips curve. But uh, the point that Milton Friedman made was that all of this trade-off was presumably contingent on a set of beliefs about inflation in the future. So if you think about yourself as Starbucks, again, setting prices, what, what do you think about when you think about wh wh whether to raise your prices? Well, of course, you think about your costs, but you also think about demand. That's, that's the basic concept in the Phillips curve, that if there's very rapid demand, um, maybe your wages are rising, there are lots of people coming into your store, you think about raising your prices. So that's the, that's the idea that, that was in the traditional Phillips curve. But there's another thing you think about, which is you think about what, what inflation is going to be in the future. So to the extent that you believe that your prices are going to be around for a while, it doesn't just matter um, how much your demand is today, but it also matters whether you think that there's going to be a lot of inflation going forward. 
So it was this second part about what you think inflation is going to be in the future, inflation expectations that Friedman added to the Phillips curve. And the point he made is that if you have a big regime change in inflation expectations, and Tom Sargent also contributed in important ways to this debate, then you could have a major change um, in current inflation, potentially without any change in the unemployment rate. So there really are these, 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 these two forces that influence the Phillips curve. You, you'd be very happy with a 4% pay rise, but then you realize inflation was 4%. So you're going to, you'll have an idea of what inflation is going to be, and then you'll ask for more than that. Exactly, exactly. And Friedman's story, which the thing that's so impressive about what he did is that he really called his shots. He, you know, he wrote his, the work by Friedman and Phelps occurred before, you know, the Phillips curve really unraveled in the 1970s. But the idea that, that they described is that maybe in the short run, the government says, well, we'll be willing to tolerate a little bit higher inflation to get a little bit lower unemployment. And they say, that's fine. We're willing to, to- well, we're willing to tolerate inflation going to 4% to lower unemployment by, by a little bit. But then once people get used to an inflation rate of 4%, they start to expect that. And then if you want to maintain this lower unemployment rate, you have to raise inflation a little bit more to, to maintain this unemployment rate that is fundamentally below sort of the fundamental equilibrium in the economy. And then you have to raise it a little bit more and a little bit more and inflation can get completely out of control. That almost perfectly describes what happened in the late 60s and 70s. Exactly. So it's an incredible um, story in, in economics, you know, as a, as a scientist, you know, seeing these cases where someone really before the thing happens, describes a theory and then sort of uh, that, that predicts what happens, uh, you know, for the right reasons is is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's, why I think, why it was so influential. But now let's move on, because when I was doing my degree in economics, it was just taken as read by, you know, very Keynesian uh, professors who obviously had a great deal of belief in the, the, the Phillips curve notion of the of the world before the 70s. It was taken as given that, that Friedman had been right about this. But we're still talking about the Phillips curve a lot. You've been involved in the debate with Larry Summers and others just, just recently, and I'm being bombarded by research from people trying to call the market to call what the Fed is going to do. Where is this concept of the Phillips curve now? Where, why are we still talking about this relationship between inflation and unemployment? Well, I think that one of the challenges that is a consequence of the way things worked out in the 1970s and 1980s is that when people look back on it, the Volcker period was a period when two things happened. There was high unemployment, inflation fell, but also there was clearly this regime change about what the long-run inflation target of the Fed was going to be. So from the simplistic view of the pre Friedman Phillips curve, it kind of fits the data, you know, because there was high unemployment and inflation fell a lot. But if you focus on um, the other part of Friedman's uh, message about inflation expectations, there's this other important channel, which had to do with the fact that Volcker was also leading a very important regime change in the way monetary policy was conducted. And potentially that was a huge uh, factor in bringing inflation down. So the reason I mention this is that a lot of the debate in, in recent years has been about the fact that I think all the empirical evidence I've seen trying to estimate the slope of the Phillips curve in recent years suggests that the slope of the Phillips curve is quite moderate, that inflation does not respond rapidly 
to changes in unemployment, it responds, but the response is quite moderate. So, for example, you, you saw lower inflation during the Great Inflation, but the decline was was quite moderate. So, there's been an academic debate about this, about different reasons why that might have occurred. But I actually think that a fairly moderate response of inflation to the output gap, to deviations in unemployment from a fundamental level is is potentially quite consistent with all of this evidence because the really big change that we have seen in U.S. inflation history was in this period in the 1980s where it wasn't just that unemployment was high. There was also this big regime change. And I mm. think that may have played a very important role. Now, many people would think that the last decade is also a very interesting polar case. You know, that We started with what we now call the Great Recession in uh, 09 and 10. You had very high levels of uh, unemployment, which have now come down you know, from 10-ish to 4-ish, very, very, very significant fall in uh, unemployment, which has had ultimately no effect on inflation, I think it's it's fair to say. It's, or very uh, little. Yes, I mean, uh, you, see, you see a small <clears throat> dip in core inflation, you know, during, during the recession, but it was very small. A lot of the people I talked to for a career have made and lost large sums of money on the, the, these undulations in the inflation rate along the way, but ultimately there's been very little effect. How do we account for the lack of a sense of... Um, a trade-off of you know, any real interaction between those two measures over this last decade? I think that um, the central point of the Phillips curve is actually that inflation doesn't respond very much to the unemployment rate. So, so the, the neoclassical economic view would be that prices respond in a very efficient way to um, changes in demand. So if there's a big shortfall of demand during a recession, then prices would fall to equilibrate the market. So I think that the main message of the Phillips curve is that those processes occur pretty slowly. And I think that that is consistent with the data that we've seen during the Great Recession. And I also think it's it's more or less consistent with the previous evidence. As I said, I think in the academic literature, the slope of the Phillips curve that has been estimated using data going back to the, the 80s and 90s indicates a, a pretty flat Phillips curve. And then once you add the, the, the Volcker disinflation, you have to deal with this fact that, that there was this massive regime change associated with changes in expectations during this time period. I think the other thing that's underappreciated in trying to think about the Phillips curve is that inflation statistics are very noisy. So this comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. So 100,000 prices go into the CPI. But a crucial thing you have to understand about the underlying price data is that the way these price data look is that most prices don't change but the ones that do change change by a lot, like by 10% or something like that, because prices are sticky. They, right. you know, they, they stay constant for long periods of time until the firm decides to raise their price. There are also a lot of sales, which lead to big fluctuations. The reason I mention all of this is because it's for these reasons regarding the underlying data that inflation statistics themselves have a huge amount of uh, measurement error at high frequency. So really? that any one month compared to another. Exactly. Exactly. On which billions of dollars as I spend my day job writing about change hands exactly isn't something we should pay that much attention exactly to. so the BLS itself reports standard errors on CPI inflation at high frequency at a monthly frequency those are based on actually um, dividing the sample the BLS sample into two parts and then calculating inflation separately on the two parts and comparing them 
And this procedure shows that there just is a substantial amount of, of sampling uncertainty, you know, as a basic sort of statistical concept in, in the CPI data that we see. The reason I mention this very nitty gritty detail is just that the, the Phillips curve, you might ask, why does it not explain the variation that we see in inflation? But in recent years, the variation we've seen in inflation has been these fairly small movements, you know, to a first approximation around, you know, 2%. You know, there, yeah. there's with some, you know, variation, as I said, there, you know, there's some small decrease in core inflation and so on during the Great Recession and so on. But a lot of the variation, I think, in core inflation, you know, a non-trivial amount of it is associated with this kind of sampling error issue. Uh, and then, of course, in in uh, overall inflation, there's also the role of, you know, things like oil prices and so on that play play an important yeah. role. One suggestion that I hear from a lot of the uh, Wall Street stockbroker economists that I that I talk to, however, is this sense that uh, at a certain point you reach a tipping point, uh, and that you do see a significant rise in inflation. That now that we're getting to a point where we truly are in full employment, as most of us would understand it, where there really is competition among employers to, to bid up wages to, to hire people, at some point, we will see this uh, relationship reinforce itself that uh, you've know, done all the work trying to find this empirically. Is there an empirical reason to think that there is a tipping point somewhere? I haven't seen evidence in that direction. I should emphasize it's hard to estimate these things because First of all, it's hard to control for the role of expectations. I think what you do see in the data that might be related to this is the fact that the only large movement in inflation uh, that we've seen in U.S. history is from the 1980s, from this Volcker disinflation we've yeah. been talking about. That is the big observation. And that's also uh, the time period with the highest unemployment rates. Right. So to the extent that you would view that as coming from the same model of the Phillips curve uh, without an expectations term, then you might see that as evidence of this kind of tipping point. But I think that it's crucial when you think about that time period to emphasize the big changes in people's long-run inflation expectations during that period. If you look at long-term inflation expectations from the survey of professional forecasters, for example, these have just been completely stable over the past, you know, since the 1990s, essentially, or since the 2000s. Whereas during this Volcker disinflation period in the, in the early 1980s, these changed a lot. So I think it's hard to, um, disentangle the evidence from this Volcker disinflation period in terms of the importance, the relative importance, uh, of the expectations about the regime versus the slope of the traditional pre-Friedman Phillips curve. It's not at all that I want to rule out the possibility that there could be some kind of tipping point or nonlinearity or something like that. But at least in what I've seen, it doesn't stand out from the data, except for perhaps you know what happened in the 1980s. But I think there are other things that were important then as well. This is a very different economy in a different functioning world from from what it was in the yeah. 1980s. And even if you don't emphasize that, even if you just think about sort of the traditional factors, I, I, I think that this, these changes in regimes are very important. And I think there is evidence that changes in regimes that are widely understood by the population can lead to um, big changes in inflation that happen rapidly. So one of the main pieces of empirical support behind the changes in the Phillips curve to include these expectation terms, in addition to Friedman and the experience of the 1970s and the Volcker disinflation, 
Tom Sargent's work on the end of hyperinflations was also a very important sort of piece of empirical foundation for the for, for these changing ideas. And what he was emphasizing there is if you look at the end of hyperinflations um, around the world, they actually often occur quite quickly. And if you were just thinking about uh, a traditional Phillips curve model in which the only thing that entered in is the trade-off between unemployment and inflation without this expectation term, without this you know regime change term, then it would be hard to rationalize how rapidly it seems that hyperinflations can end. But it turns out that in fact you can have these incredibly rapid ends of hyperinflations, and you know it, it's probably also true that you you could have um, rapid in, uh, increases in, inf- in inflation in the opposite direction if. Uh, overnight, people start to think we were in a different regime. So those are the kinds of forces that I would think of as potentially most important uh, in terms of the possibility of inflation rising rapidly. Okay. In general, the kind of fear that many of my uh, contacts on the street are living in at present isn't terribly justified from... Uh, yeah, From not so I, so, so I would say um that that holding fixed, you know, the regime, I, I don't I haven't seen evidence along those lines that there's this nonlinearity. The things that would make me worry about a rapid rise in inflation wouldn't 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 so much be um the idea that inflation responds in in a tipping point sort of fashion to or how how low the unemployment rate is, but rather that maybe there could be changes in the perceived policies of the Fed that would really make us think that the regime was different than it was before. Now, that leads to one other very interesting piece of research you've done, particularly as we have the first Powell FOMC to look forward to as we're we're recording this, which was looking at how markets respond on the days that the FOMC makes a rate announcement. Because obviously, a lot of correlations are difficult to disentangle because a raise in rates is also probably because the economy is doing quite well and Absolutely. a cut in rates is also because economy is probably not doing all that well it's difficult to disentangle those effects how important again i'm going to be spending all next wednesday afternoon desperately analyzing what goes on how important is what the fed decides in itself irrespective of what the economic backdrop is how important can we say that decision is. I think it's very important. I think if you look at what that project was about, was was it was about looking at the relationship between movements in the nominal interest rate, which is directly the the Federal Reserve controls the Fed funds rate, the nominal interest rate, and the real interest rate, which is the nominal interest rate adjusted for inflation. So, if we didn't have a Phillips curve in the neoclassical world where inflation adjusted perfectly and rapidly to changes in economic conditions, then you might think that the Fed could do whatever it wanted with a nominal interest rate and there would be no effect on the real interest rate because inflation, you know, would just adjust to kind of equate supply and demand. But that really isn't what we see in the data. What we, what we see is that when the FOMC makes an announcement that moves the nominal interest rate, and nominal interest rate expectations, there are, you know, almost one for one movements in the real interest rate, which is the exact um, counterpart of this discussion we've been having about how inflation doesn't seem to adjust very rapidly to changes in, in real economic activity. So in that analysis, we're actually using data going back to the late 1990s when tips started to exist. And that's part of the reason I say that even before the last recession, you know, for a long time, I think it's been the case that there's various evidence that this Phillips curve 
looks pretty flat. Now, in this paper, we're kind of emphasizing two distinct channels through which the Fed has this influence. One is this traditional idea that because inflation is pretty slow moving, that um, the decisions the Fed makes about the nominal interest rate, they also affect the real interest rate, which is really the key variable that consumers think about in deciding how much to spend or firms think about in deciding how, how much to invest. But then also that there's this information effect that if Janet Yellen um, lowered the interest rate more than people expected or raised it less than people expected, maybe people might think, well, that that suggests that maybe Janet Yellen is more worried about the economy than I thought. And if Janet Yellen is more worried about the economy than I, than I thought, well, maybe I should also be more worried about the economy. And so that creates a, an element where the Fed is sort of fighting against itself. Because on the one hand, when it lowers interest rates, it's stimulating the economy by making it cheaper to invest and consume and so on. On the other hand, it may be sending a signal that the economy is worse than people thought, which which might make them more pessimistic and not want to spend as much. Broadly speaking, if we look at that, that first hour after the announcement comes out, which is a pure... Yes, a pure monetary shock. And it's real. Yes, yes. It's encouraging to, to know that all the uh, column inches we devote to what the Fed is going to do <laughs> might, 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 might actually be, be worth doing. One final question I'd like to ask you, which comes back to another trade-off. This one is more between Wall Street and Main Street, is uh, the very specific part of the inflation equation is wage inflation. It's called the Bureau of Labor Statistics for, for a reason, I suppose. And there has been great concern about how wage inflation could feed into uh, inflation. I suppose ultimately that's how the Phillips curve relationship would would work. Uh, and we've had the greatest market excitement for the you know of this presidency occurred when uh, average hourly earnings were showed to have risen at an, uh, an annualized rate of two point nine percent a month ago. What kind of measurement problems might there be in measuring? wage inflation. How sensible is it to be looking at each month's wage inflation data like that? Wage inflation is, if, if anything, I think, even more difficult than price inflation to measure. So um, as I described at the beginning, the sort of sim simple approach that the BLS uses to measure price inflation is to say, look at this two liter bottle of Coke sold at a particular store over time and see how its price changes. Now, the challenge that occurs in the labor market is that you have to think about what you're going to hold fixed over time. So if you, John, decide to work somewhere else, you might um, get a different wage. But then, of course, you would also be doing something different. Um, on the other hand, if someone different were hired here at the FT to do your job, yeah, okay, they might Extreme get a different hypothesis. We're looking at now. Yeah. <laughs> they might get a different wage, but of course, would they be producing the stuff, same product? We don't know. Mm. So those are the kinds of and challenges. The quality considerations. The quality considerations. If the, if the are, editors are listening. Would obviously be. Crucial. Yeah. Crucial. Right. Exactly. So you can't just look at the, at the changes in, in wages in, in a simple minded way necessarily and figure out what the inflation rate is because it's going to be bundled together with these important quality consequences of these changes. It's a question of following the person or the job, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Or right. neither. So right. the, the, actually the simplest measures of these things don't follow either the person or the job. So they, they're, they're quite sensitive to composition issues. Um, they just look at average, uh, average wages, average hourly earnings. So they look at, um, earnings per week, um, you know, and divide them by uh, measures of, of how much people are working. 
um, which are also somewhat limited, and and then look at this hourly earnings measure over time. But that is actually subject to both of these problems, the problem that you're not holding the person constant and you're not holding the job constant. So those, when I look at those, I see a lot of variation over time that I find pretty hard to interpret. There are somewhat less used measures of wage inflation, like, for example, this wage tracker uh, measure that the that one of the feds puts out that looks at the same person over time and tracks their wages. Now, that person may be moving to, to, to new jobs. Um, so this question of how to interpret that. But that measure, to me, looks a lot easier to, inter- to interpret. And what you see in that measure is a sort of slow and, and steady rise of, of wages since the economy has been recovering after the Great uh, Recession. And, and I think you see a similar thing in the, in the uh, employer cost index, which is kind of trying to hold the uh, job constant as opposed to the worker constant. So I think, I think it's challenging. There, there are many measures of uh, wages and it's kind of hard to know how to interpret them. But it, to me, the ones that uh, seem easiest to interpret also, also are the ones that seem to give the, the answers that are sort of most in line with our intuition about what, what you would expect after a big recession. Which is that very slowly and very mm-hmm. steadily things pick up right. after the after the shock has been administered to us. Right. But that would probably mean that you wouldn't need quite so many tens and hundreds of thousands of words from from me analysing it <laughs> along the way, or uh, that not quite so much money would change hands in Wall Street as people placed their bets on exactly what the next data point was going to be. Emmy, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. And that's the end of this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we'd love to hear what you think. You can send us an email or record a voice memo and send it to alphachat at ft.com. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find out about us. And it also helps us figure out what is and isn't working with the show. Before we go, I want to mention that links to Emmy's papers that were discussed in today's episode, they're going to be featured uh, in a few places on ft.com. If you go to ft.com forward slash alpha chat, we'll compile all of these links. And I also want to mention John sends out a, a nightly markets commentary newsletter. It's called Author's Note, and you can find it at ft.com forward slash NBE. And that stands for news by email. We'll link to all of this on uh, ft.com forward slash alpha chat before the weekend. Thanks to John and to Emmy for this week's interview. And thanks to you, our listeners. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.